This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. How many times have you thought to yourself, I wish I could know more about, well, you fill in the blank. You've come to the right place. I am Chuck Jones, Executive Director of Commonwealth Charlotte and the host of the No More podcast. Each week, we'll help you know more about some of the challenges faced by low-income wage earners in Charlotte and nationwide, seen through the lens of organizations whose mission it is to address those challenges. So thank you for coming, and here we go. Thank you for scrolling through all of the podcasts available to you and deciding to stop and listen to ours. I'm honored you allow us this slice of your life. Whether you're a regular listener or this is your first time, I'm glad you're here and you're in for a real treat today. I'm excited to welcome the leader of one of Charlotte's best known organizations assisting those who have been justice involved to re-enter and re-establish themselves as vibrant and contributing members of the community. The Center for Community Transitions has as its mission to strengthen our community by helping people with criminal records and their families find a healthier and more productive way of living. Its work provides employment and transition services, supports alternatives to incarceration, and restores and strengthens family bonds. CCT is led by my guest today. Patrice Funderburg has been executive director since 2020 and is responsible for the vision and strategic direction of one of Charlotte's most respected organizations exclusively serving justice-involved people and their families. She has a long history with CCT prior to becoming executive director, serving first as a board member and even co-chair of the organization. She holds degrees from North Carolina Central University, the University of Buffalo and Canisius, none of which appear to have anything to do with justice involvement, and we will definitely talk about that today. But CCT is a close neighbor of Commonwealth Charlotte. We have offices directly adjacent to each other at the Goodwill Opportunity Campus, and you have been one of our longest-standing partners. So I'm particularly happy to see you here in the studio with me. Patrice, welcome to the No More Podcast. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Chuck. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you. You know, I, I feel so close to your organization. I see you and your staff so much and sometimes feel like we're almost part of the same organization just because we share that space together. I love how that was intentional in the construction of the Goodwill Opportunity Campus. It, it was intentional. And, and we work with, uh, with, with such a, a, a similar population to the people that we work with. So it's great to have that partnership. And I love all your folks. So uh, it's good to have you. Now, I'm going to start by saying you and I talked a little bit this week and you said, Chuck, it looks like your podcasts are 20 to 30 minutes long, and I don't know whether I can get everything I need to say in. So don't worry about that. I feel the same. I am so passionate about the work that you all do and our partnership that uh, we're not going to worry too much about time. So okay. uh, let's just talk. Um, you know, uh, first, I, I just, you know, we're, we're going to talk about everything we said we would, but, but just tell our listeners about you. 
Tell me about you. Oh, wow. Yeah. In less than 20 minutes now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I am originally from Buffalo, New York. And um, as you mentioned in the intro, attended North Carolina Central University in the early 90s. Um, I actually left North Carolina Central University um, when I became pregnant at the end of my junior year and returned back home to Buffalo to complete my undergraduate degree at the State University of New York at Buffalo, or UB. Um, I immediately went to grad school at Canisius College and obtained a Master of Science in Organizational Communication and Development, um, moving directly into human resources in the corporate sector, where I worked for a little over two and a half decades, including when we relocated to Charlotte in 2006. So you're right, my path into the justice space and the nonprofit space as well um, was not planned. Well, I love it. On your LinkedIn page, you refer to yourself as an emancipated corporate HR professional now using 20 plus years experience for reentry and second chances. Indeed, I am blissfully and happily emancipated from the corporate HR space. Um, I did that in 2016, which was really a spirit led moment for me when I found myself um just sort of moving in the world a little bit differently and deciding what did I want to do after a long career in corporate HR. And the summer of 2016, um, when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were murdered by police in Minneapolis and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, respectively, um, was a game changer for me. Um, I didn't know what I needed to do, what I should do, but I knew I needed to do something. And I created a community education class using the scholarship of Michelle Alexander's uh, 2010 book, um, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And so I wrote a little community curriculum for a six-week class on that course, um, and it was widely received in the community. Um, It prompted me to take a look at what is happening in the criminal justice space and the reentry space in the Charlotte community where I've been calling home for several years. And the Center for Community Transition was the first hit that came up on Google. Um, The executive director at the time uh, responded to an inquiry that I submitted to the website. And um, I would love to say the rest is history because it is, but I haven't looked back since. In 2017, she invited me to join the board and um, I learned both a lot about nonprofits, about nonprofit board, about the population, as I was continuing to do the community education class. And in late 2018, uh, the executive director started to talk a little bit about retirement, and um, that was the nudge. Um, The end of 2019, I said yes, and here we are. Here we are. And the organization just continues to thrive under you. I mean, I love the work that you you all do. Thank you. Thank uh, you. It does, and you're and you're the people that work with you, and those who are doing the the frontline work with with uh, the clients that you deal with. They're just great people. Absolutely, absolutely. And as a person who comes from the corporate HR sector, um, at no point today or when I started do I attempt to um, posture as someone who has deep expertise in the correction space. Um, however, I have thirty talented folks across the organization 
that have a wide range of skills and experience and passion for this work. And as you mentioned in the intro, my job is for the vision and strategy of the organization. And as someone who comes out of human resources, I'm a people person. And so mm-hmm. my jam is finding the ways that we can flow together as a unit, as an organization to provide the best service to the individuals that are making the choice to transition um, either after period of incarceration or navigating the complexities of what we call in the space collateral consequences of having a criminal conviction. Wow. That's cool. That's cool stuff. You know, I'm going to come back and talk about this later. Just made a note that that's sometimes interesting how passion and experience and expertise sometimes lead you in directions that you don't expect. Isn't and that amazing? We're going to come back. So I okay. don't want to, I don't, we'll get derailed there and I don't want to do that. But, okay. um, you know, so, so talk to me a little bit about CCT because um, I know a lot about it, but our listeners may not. They should know about it because mm-hmm. the work that you do is critical, not just for the, the community mm-hmm. that we're involved in, but also for the, certainly for the people that are involved with you. Describe CCT for just a few minutes. Yeah. So the Center for Community Transition um, was founded in 1974 um, as a result of really a graduate intern's uh, research paper that was presented to um, some state legislators. And it was created to provide transition assistance to men who were transitioning out of North Carolina state prisons at the time, Um, employment, housing, and other wraparound services. So that's the flagship of the organization. That program evolved to what we now call LifeWorks Supportive Employment Program today, which is housed in the same location as Commonwealth Charlotte at the Goodwill Opportunity Campus. The LifeWorks Employment Program, as the flagship of the agency, provides supportive employment to individuals that are experiencing incarceration currently, and I'll talk a little bit about our Center for Women in a moment, individuals that have transitioned out of incarceration, whether it's the local jail, some other jail, state prison, or even federal prison. And then we have a family program that came a little bit later called Families Doing Time, which works with students and families enrolled in CMS who have identified justice involvement or justice adjacency in their home, um, up to and including any stage of the deportation process as well. So together, the LifeWorks program, Families Doing Time, and the third program, which opened in the late 80s, is the Center for Women, which is a contract residential work release facility for 30 women who are currently incarcerated serving the end of their state prison sentence. So in essence, we receive individuals who apply to come to CCT while they are in prison and they spend the final one to three years living with us. So they have housing. They enroll in our LifeWorks employment program, and I'm super excited that we are um, preparing to introduce more family program for the ladies um, we call residents who live at the Center for Women. So yeah, that's a great facility. It is. We love working with them, and we've done a, we've done a whole lot of work uh, in that facility as well. You know, one of the things that, that I want uh, when we do these, uh, the, the whole title of the podcast is No More. Mm-hmm. I, I want people to know more about... Uh, the work that my guests do. And one of the things that that I find just as a, a bit of a, a personal crusade, but also certainly something that I want our organization to be involved in, particularly through this podcast, is knocking down stereotypes. So when 
you think about those who have been justice involved, it's easy for someone who doesn't think much deeper than that for this to look like a homogenous group of people. Mm-hmm. It could not be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Can you explain or at least uh, talk a little bit about um, just the, the variety of, of individuals who come through your program and who come through uh, the, the incarceration system? Yeah, wow. Um, we don't have a profile, right? The Thank you. criteria. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> the criteria is justice involvement, period. Um, that looks like young people who get caught up in the system. That looks like um, women, men, and everything in between um, who get caught up in the system for a variety of different reasons. Um, And I even say men, women loosely because, you know, the gender binary is changing and there's a tremendous amount of advocacy work happening for individuals who are non-binary, transgender individuals. Um, And so CCT doesn't have a profile. Um, An individual, for example, may come into the Goodwill Opportunity Campus and identify that they have justice involvement alignment and impact partnership looks like in the job resource center when an individual comes in and discloses that voluntarily a call is made to our life works team to invite that individual to explore do you need assistance with employment coming out of justice involvement um I want to just say one thing about your first guest, Darren Ash, that resonated with me when I was listening to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And Darren said something that I would like to reinforce so that people know more. Mm -hmm. People are the experts in their own lives. Exactly. And so when I say CCT doesn't have a profile, Mm -hmm. what that looks like is an individual who is the expert in their own life makes a choice that something has to change. They may want to know more about how to navigate the collateral consequences of justice involvement in CCT for almost 50 years coming up next year has been providing that assistance to individuals in that way. Well, that's such a great point because, you know, we do workshops for you and we do counseling with your clients. And when I look at the, the, the folks that come through your organization, they, they are, they are from everywhere. They, they are everywhere from college education to not even completing high school. They're of all races. They're of all ethnicities. They, they're uh, of all genders. And, and you can't, um, you can't, make this a stereotype. But if you do, if you just put a label on someone and leave it at that, it's harmful. Don't you think? We are all one mistake away from potentially needing the services of CCT. We are all one mistake away. That's a great way to put it. Those who know me well know that one of my uh, very good friends is Josh. And Josh uh, uh, was just as involved. And I met Josh originally at the uh, at the halfway house, when uh, he wanted counseling for from from Commonwealth Charlotte, and um, I, I will never forget one of the things that he said to me uh, later on as we became friends. He said, uh, uh, "I made a mistake when I was young. I own it. I paid for it, and now I want to get back to the life that I thought I would have." Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great line, mm-hmm. and I see that in the clients that that we work with uh, with you. Absolutely. Nationally, there are over 70 million people that have a criminal record. Wow. That's one in three Americans wow. have some sort of justice involvement. 
our proximity to and relationship with justice involvement in this country is very delicate. And so I want to anchor to people are the experts of their own lives because I don't know Josh, but I can imagine a variety of different scenarios and conditions that led to a choice that he made that ended up being a mistake that led to justice involvement that led to the conversation that you had about, I just want to get back to what my life was supposed to be. When we attempt to place a profile or a pathology even on individuals that have that experience of justice involvement or criminal conviction history, we do a disservice to ourselves, to our community, and ultimately to humanity. Because in this country, there are a tremendous amount of systemic and structural inequities that we could talk about for a whole a lot of time. Well, let's, we're right? going to. Okay, I'm going to ask you about that, so keep going. Um, there's systemic and structural inequities that lead to making choices that lead to um, criminal conviction histories or even incarceration. Um, crimes of survival, trauma, substance abuse, um, concentrated poverty. Um, poverty is criminalized in this country right now. And we see it all. We've had lawyers and nurses and other individuals that have come through the Center for Women um, that made one bad choice. And one of the values that we have at CCT is centering lived experience and the ways in which we use our programming to center that lived experience make it easier, we hope, our hope is that it's easier for the individual to make the choices as they prepare either for transition, as they're coming out of incarceration, or if they've been navigating these collateral consequences of incarceration, the stigma, the scarlet F for felony, right? Um, whether it's in employment, in housing, in education, in healthcare, in familial relationships, and just how the community sees an individual is very taxing on someone that has a criminal conviction. And so for the Joshes of the world who just want to get back to what their life was supposed to be, navigating all those complexities can be very trying on an individual. In CCT, our intention to strengthen the community by providing those resources and those tools for individuals to make a choice because they are the expert in their lives, it serves a purpose, right? And that purpose isn't saving an individual from a thing, but it serves a purpose differently than what maybe some traditional programs may provide. It serves the purpose that we see you, we know you want to make different choices. Let us help you make different choices. Yeah, that's that's wow. You you had so much there, and I'm trying to keep up with it all. But I want to I want to tack three things together that I've heard you say so far, and then sure. I want to talk about that a little bit. You said early on we're all one mistake away from uh, being justice involved, and then you said that that those mistakes are can be become labels. And I will tack one thing to that and say that, uh, oh, you also mentioned trauma in there, the trauma of that. And I think that one of the things that 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 is, is important to me is I never want to be judged by the mistake that you remember, you know, mm. because we all make mistakes. Indeed. But yet when you've been in justice involved, you it is very difficult to not be labeled by the mistake that you made. How do you think that impacts individuals from the standpoint of trauma? 
Hmm. Well, I am a lifelong student, but I am not a social worker. My ex, I am the wife of one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think trauma plays a huge role in the relationship between incarceration and second chances. Um, in fact, I think trauma oftentimes is the genesis of decisions that people oftentimes are forced to make to survive. Crimes of survival, you hear. Um, the trauma of intimate partner violence. The trauma of sexual assault. Um, the trauma of molestation. The trauma of witnessing violent crime um, as a young person or even as an adult. Um, there are a variety of different experiences that could be defined as trauma that individ- that shift the way an individual sees the world and also shows up in the world. Well, we see that all the time mm-hmm. in what we do because we are uh, we try to be as expert on trauma as we can be, but mm-hmm. it's such a deep, deep topic. But we do think that what we do is trauma-informed, and we see that all the time, that trauma is relived and not remembered. And so in in finances and I'm sure in incarceration as well, that that. Uh, reliving of that trauma of what happens can be triggered by a lot of different things. Absolutely. And so reentering into society is one of those things that I would think there would be many, many triggers that could happen along the way. And that can be setbacks. Absolutely. Absolutely. We see it all the time at the Center for Women and even with clients in the LifeWorks program that are, you know, they experience joy about the shared experience of the LifeWorks Supportive Employment Program. One, because it's a classroom setting and they're in a room with individuals that have their version of the same story, right? And so there's something about collective oneness, even if it is on the other side of a not so great experience. Similarly, with the ladies that live at the Center for Women, when they approach what we call transition, which is six months pre-release, and then when you get to 90 days pre-release, we start to see an uptick in, not in all, but we start to see an uptick in behaviors that are very much linked to anxieties that lead to the traumas that the individual may have experienced that led to the incarceration. I'm going back out into the world. The world is very much still the same that it was in many ways when I came into prison, whether it was two-year sentence or 30-year sentence. Am I going to be okay? And what I'm really proud of, CCT, is that we not only articulate in our vision and mission in the way we do the work that we do, but we hold that space for the individual so that they can navigate, even in that moment, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And similarly, for the individual in the LifeWorks program, they complete the program, they graduate, they're networking with employers, they get the job, and they're at the job, and then retention, right? I have to go see my parole officer or I have to go to a court appearance. Is that going to be problematic for attendance or performance? I'm just going to get fired or can you help me navigate in these spaces? This is what it looks like for CCT to hold space in the LifeWorks program through our client advisors and our job developer for the individual to navigate the anxiety there as well. So 
trauma at the onset of making that choice that leads to criminal behavior or even criminal thinking. On the other side of that is hope and support and community and second chances. And that's all asset-based work that CCT has been focused on for literally half a century to provide that to individuals that are navigating those complexities. Right. It's so critical what you say. And that is that um, too many people uh, in the world uh, of justice involvement and in other aspects of the world as well, um, uh, it seems that that finding someone who trusts and believes in them is a challenge for some people. Absolutely. And you do. You do that all the time. We do. And we hold them accountable. You hold them accountable. Right? So there's there's compassion and there's accountability. Right? right. And we live on that spectrum with every client that we work with, with every individual that comes through our doors. You do. And uh, it's it's just amazing to see the work that you do. OK, now then. Let's go down the rabbit hole for a minute. Okay. All right. You mentioned systemic and structural inequities. Um, tell me what you mean. Go, go there. We'll, we'll, we're okay. going to take the time, all right? Okay. Let's go there. I'll, I'll I, go I there. invited you because you're an expert on this. Yeah. And, and I want our listeners to know more about what that means. Yeah. Well, you're very generous. Um, I don't see myself as an expert. Um, I see myself as one of many individuals who have not had the experience of incarceration that has very intentionally and declaratively and unapologetically in most spaces um, put myself in community with individuals that have lived experience. And together with the skills and experiences and knowledge that I do have, how can I support changing the narrative about this work? So I start with that. Um, This country was founded on the extracted labor of people who were taken from their homes in Africa, enslavement of um, black and brown individuals. Um, When European settlers came to this country, there was a very express and explicit goal to colonize this land. Um, up to and including without going through all of the legislation from uh, the country's founding. We don't have time for that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But things like there were legislative acts to annihilate the native peoples here in what was once called Turtle Island. There were a multitude of legislative practices and policies that governed the bodies of people who look like me. I'm an African-American woman. The ways in which those policies and legislation have evolved, using the language from Michelle Alexander's work, they have recalibrated as society has evolved. And so when we think about mass incarceration, I'll sort of fast forward to mass incarceration really, really began after the DNC convention in 68 in Chicago and the uprisings at that convention, there were a couple of things going on in the country at that time. And one of them was the rise of the Black Panther Party, but there was also a very progressive and liberal movement going on as well. And the uprising at the DNC convention in Chicago sort of culminated both of those things. It was at that time that then President Nixon began talking about law and order and restoring order 
in this country as a result of both progressives that were protesting the war and also the Black Panther Party that was protesting unfair treatment to black people in this country. And one thing we know for certain is that when power is tested, power will hunker down. And at the highest office in the land, power hunkered down. And as a result of the increase of the opioid epidemic after the war in the early 70s and late 60s, punishment was the result. And what we see happening from the mid-70s all the way through the 2000s was the rise of incarceration for both male and female offenders. And today we're seeing those long sentences ending, right? We've had some favorable legislation over the past few years. And so people are, while the rate of incarceration is declining, all of the socioeconomic and racial implications of why mass incarceration exploded the way that it did. And now on the other side of what are we going to do with folks as they're getting out of jails and prison, racial inequity and structural economic inequities have not changed as much. Right. And so we have to contend with all of these factors. It feels like it's a geometric progression. Mm. It feels like it doesn't just respond uh, one to another one to another one, but one to two, two to four, four to eight and that way. That yeah. feels, that's what the last 30 years feels like to me. Yeah. In activists and movement spaces, um, there's a phenomenon or a concept called the nonprofit industrial complex, which really was authored by some of the activists that were um, doing this work 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the nonprofit industrial complex teaches us that the economic, political, and social forces that work together to marginalize identified and targeted communities to keep them at the bottom of the economic ladder. So when you think about the statistics of who is incarcerated, it's people of color and poor people. Right. Overwhelmingly. Absolutely. Right. And so we have to start with that truth to understand what the opportunities are to change the narrative and also reimagine what it looks like to hold folks accountable for mistakes that they made. It doesn't change and it doesn't um, dismiss or diminish or belittle that folks have a variety of different um, experiences that lead to crime. Um, it doesn't change violent crime. Um, but it does open the door for a very different conversation about the profile, usually rooted in fear, right? Because public safety is and a narrative. Ignorance. Right, exactly. Um, but it does open the door for the conversation. And I do believe that in many ways that conversation is happening. We have to be careful about it. But the conversation is happening. Folks are getting out. From a workforce development standpoint, 70 million folks have some sort of justice involvement. And only until recently, and I would argue that recently being as recent as George Floyd in 2020, our businesses and people inside of businesses that hold power to hire and fire folks are looking at talent pools and, and hiring folks that have justice involvement. That wasn't happening 15 years ago. Um, that's part of the reason why CCT has been one of the best kept secrets. So we have an opportunity to both leverage the business conversation, which is beginning to address some of the economic inequities, 
But the racial piece is a much larger conversation that as a country, we still have to contend with. Absolutely. So I'm going to go one step deeper and ask you a question. Is privatization of the incarceration system part of the problem? Mm, That's interesting. Um, Five years ago, I would say yes. However, there's... um, I won't even say emerging research, but there is research out there now. Um, Yes, private prisons is a part of the equation and making money off of bodies, particularly black bodies, brown bodies and poor bodies um, has never not been a truth in this country. Right. But private prisons doesn't make up the whole pie necessarily. Okay. Right. Um, And that was something that I learned in the work since I've been in the work since 2016. In a capitalist society where money is the bottom line, return on investment is the bottom line, it's easy to take a narrative to push the blame on these corporate privatization of prisons. And that's a part of the equation, as I stated. However, we need to think about what are the pathways into prison? What are the pipelines into prison, right, that create the reason for us to create a formula on how do we make money off of bodies, right? right? That's the issue. That's, That's great. The That's real great issue. clarification. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that because uh, I'd love to. I could talk about that for a while, but I'm going to move on. Yeah, I'm sure you could. <laughs> so let's. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and then go forward. So one of the things that you said um, a few moments ago was you, you mentioned crimes of survival, mm-hmm. and you quickly followed that by saying poverty is criminalized in this country. So let's go back and talk about that. Uh, first, and then I'm going to take us to another place. T- tell me about a crime of survival. Yeah, so crimes of survival include, um, as a woman, I hear stories all the time at the house or the Center for Women, um, born into poverty. Mom was in an abusive relationship. That abusive relationship may or may not have included abuse of the person person grows up, stages of development, moves in the world from a position of fight or flight and has their own children, repeats generational poverty, can't get a job, ends up stealing. Right. Or ends up getting a job where fraud becomes kind of the MO. Um, Or they kill Right. Mm -hmm. So surviving a multitude of experiences that were traumatic without any resources to prevent those experiences at the generational level and then also address those experiences without it being punitive. Right. I, I think there's an argument to be made that survival is the most basic of human instincts. Oh, absolutely. And so. Uh, we all uh, live in various uh, stages of what that survival is. But when you get to the basics of survival, when you need to survive and you have two children, we see it all the time. I have Mm -hmm. two children and I'm about to be evicted from where I live. I've got to do something to just survive this. Yes. And it becomes it, it becomes paramount in their lives. And I can see exactly what you're saying about uh, how that could lead to a crime of survival. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think another factor that's important to remember in terms of structural and systemic inequities is concentrated poverty, right? And this goes back to the history of our country as well and how concentrated communities or ghettos or the projects um, were created. And so if I live in a community that is a concentrated community of thousands of people who are having similar experiences of poverty, then neighborhood economies emerge, right? And again, structurally and systemically in this country, in a positive way, concentrated communities of color, specifically post-slavery, were thriving. And those communities were decimated. We think about right here in North Carolina and Wilmington. We think about Oklahoma. We think about Rochester, Detroit. There, every city in this country probably has a version of the black community or black and brown communities were thriving and they were decimated mm-hmm. because of racism. So these concentrated communities of poverty lead to neighborhood economies that often are thriving air quotes here, on illegal activities, right? Because out in the real world, outside of my neighborhood, I'm going to get stopped. I'm going to get profiled. Someone is going to create a reason for me to go to prison. And once I'm marked, then that creates a lifelong experience of collateral consequences that I'm having to navigate. Mm. Um, Is that why you would say poverty is criminalized in this country? I think poverty is criminalized in this country because when people go to jail, there are fees associated with getting out of jail. And if you're already poor, the likelihood that you're able to pay those fees also goes down. Right. And even when you are released, folks have restitution that they have to pay when they're released from prison. And if you only have a minimum wage job or certainly not a livable wage job and you have to pay rent and we know what the housing situation is, um, there's it's a no win situation. These things interact together to keep people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Now, for all the folks who may be listening that say everyone should have a chance, the whole bootstrap theory, there's too much evidence and too much research that shows the combination of systemic and structural inequities, period, systemic and structural racial inequities, systemic and structural economic inequities that all work together wrapped by a criminal legal system that targets individuals that fit into those categories, it's a no-win situation. It is a no-win situation. I agree. I've and said, someone is making money off of it on the other side. I, I've <laughs> said many times, I, uh, I don't think I entered into this work as one of those who would say the system's against some people. But I, as, I, as I've done the work that we've done, I've begun to realize very much that we have huge systemic problems. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I love that uh, CCT and I hope Commonwealth Charlotte uh, are addressing those problems in some way. Uh, that's that's what I hope that we're doing. Oh, and I absolutely. think that we are. I think you are, too. And let's talk about that for just a minute, since this is a little bit rooted in financial. You know, what, mm-hmm. uh, share with our listeners some of the um, some of the challenges that someone who is just as involved and is coming back into society what are some of the economic and personal finance challenges they deal with specifically? Mm-hmm. Well, we know employment and housing are the bedrock of reentry. 
We also know that housing is unattainable, not even for just folks that have justice involvement, but just unattainable for it many, in, period. It's incredible what we what housing costs are here. Right. So an individual who has a history of criminal convictions or is returning from a short or even a long period of incarceration has a higher unemployment rate. I was just looking at September unemployment rates was just under 4%. For the justice involved, Prison Policy Institute um through all of the body of work and research that that organization um, and think tank does, people with justice involvement have upwards of 27% unemployment rate. So even as the economy continues to slowly recover from the pandemic, the chasm between the national unemployment rate of just under 4%, I think it was 3.6 or 3.8%, and close to 30% unemployment probably exacerbated in some communities for folks that have justice involvement. That takes 50% of the bedrock of reentry down quite a bit. Hmm. And then when you tack on to that rent for one household that's close to $2,000, And a person who's potentially making a $9, $11, or maybe even $15 an hour job is close to impossible. It's close to impossible. It's close to impossible. Um, So what that looks like for some of our clients and residents that we work with at the house is probably who I'm a little bit closer to. When they get there, when the residents at the Center for Women find employment, um, only because they are still under the custody of the state do is there a little bit more room to provide coaching and counseling, financial coaching and counseling and literacy. And that is a part of the relationship that CCT and the Center for Women specifically have with your organization, with Commonwealth Charlotte. What that looks like is when residents arrive at the house, they meet with their case manager, but they set goals. We pull their credit scores. Some may have never seen it before. Many haven't. Right. And so it gives them just one, because there are many other opportunities and goals that the lady set at the house, but to look at their financials and see their credit score and know that there is a community of support both at CCT and at Commonwealth Charlotte that is going to help them incrementally make changes, learn better savings, all the things that they may not have the resources or the opportunity, but for this experience. And and we say that all the time with everyone that we work with, which is we, it is not our goal to make decisions for you, but it is our goal to hopefully help you understand more and know more about your situation so you can make informed decisions. Right. We, we see that all the time. And the, the example I always use is none of us uh, know how much we spend eating out every month. None of us know that. But almost every one of us will underestimate that mm. at all income levels. Yeah. So unless you know that, unless you t- make become intentional about deciding that you want to know how much you are spending in certain areas, mm-hmm. how much your expenses are, you can't make those informed decisions. Yeah. And that's Budgeting what we, is big. Budgeting is really big Mm -hmm. and understanding your spending is big. Absolutely. And we've had successes, 
right? Um, I try to focus on sort of asset and celebration versus deficit and punishment um, as a part of actively embodying what narrative change and narrative shift looks like. And we've had residents buy cars before they left the Center for Women. Um, We have a great partnership with another nonprofit that's helping us with housing, that's helping residents with housing um, for the reentry population, the formerly incarcerated and justice-involved population. We've had residents that during their time at CCT saved up so that they could get a house or start the pathway to home ownership and get an apartment in addition to a car. We've had individuals that have been promoted on their jobs that are making upwards of 50, 60,000. And because they're living at the house, they can come directly to us and also to Commonwealth Charlotte. I'm nervous. I'm going to be releasing soon. I'm nervous and I want to make certain that I can carry these practices out when I leave the house. And we we provide that resource up to the release and even after the release. Well, I know one of the things that we've worked with with your clients is is uh, and your residents are that is that transition from being with you in the house to being on their own and how that finance because sometimes they do leave with some money mm-hmm. and so we're we're trying to help them understand that plan for that in advance so that when you walk out the door you've got a you've got a real plan for that and how to how to go forward with it. Absolutely. I want to duck back on one thing you said just a minute ago and ask you to to, to uh, pretend you have a crystal ball. Okay. Mm. Um, so you, you said that you know you, you mentioned the unemployment rates of being uh, for general population under four percent now, which does look great, but for um, justice involved being twenty seven percent. Why do you think that? Why do you think that's true? I mean, it goes back to profiling, right? Um, Not to get too academic, um, there is a well-known implicit bias test that is, I think it's still available. Um, A researcher by the name of Brian Nosek created um, Project Implicit um, many years ago, and Project Implicit measures uh, the ways in which um, we profile and stereotype based on certain characteristics. And there is a project implicit test on criminality. And it literally is a series of pictures that blink on your screen and you just have to hit your arrow buttons for if this person looks threatening or not. And overwhelmingly, the person who is darker complected or wears a particular type of attire is perceived as criminal. And so, again, the ways that our implicit bias rule how we behave or decisions that we make about another human drive a lot of the individual and also institutional fears and stigmas that prevent folks from attaining employment. Um, Overwhelmingly, and this is... Part of why, you know, just coming from the human resources space, um, individuals that have justice involvement, the HR person has a plethora of tools to filter them out, right? Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, inside of businesses, companies celebrate that they've banned the box, right? 
Um, ban in the box is literally only the first step and it's really a marketing campaign, right? Mm, What matters is what is the employee life cycle? How are we engaging this 70 million Americans that have justice involvement? How are we retaining them? How are we enriching them in the talent mobility process? How are we engaging them? The Society for Human Resource Management Foundation did a study in 2018 on workers with criminal records And over 80% of HR professionals overwhelmingly said that they would be likely to consider hiring a person with justice involvement. Because why? The research shows that people with justice involvement have up to between 10 and 15% lower turnover. And when I was in HR, turnover was 150% of the base salary of a position. So we could do that math. So there's lower turnover, higher productivity, Right. And the justice involved person, our clients and residents will say, I have too much to lose. Once I get hired, I'm not trying to go anywhere. Right. And so you have higher retention rates and you also have higher productivity and the quality of productivity. So from a business standpoint, all of the metrics that if I was still in my HR hat, all of the metrics that would be favorable to saving dollars and valuating a return on investment would lean toward the justice involved population. But there's this other thing called media, right? Right. There's this other thing called media and narratives and the ways that media and narratives can drive the way a company chooses to engage in a thing. Banning the box is safe, right? Because we can do a nice, pretty marketing campaign and we can take this off our applications. But what we don't often talk about is the filtering process and the interview and selection process. And so not to get too mechanical, um, That's where the real magic can happen. And that's, quite frankly, is what is happening with organizations or coalitions like the Second Chance Business Coalition, which is co-chaired by the CEO of Eaton Corporation and the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase that are putting it out there in the business community that, yes, you can do this. And now there are toolkits and guides for businesses to hire folks with criminal records. Addressing the stigma of what media narratives say about individuals that have justice involvement is just like an individual addressing our own implicit bias. It's just an institutional level. Either you are or you're not. Right. And as a black woman of color who unapologetically talks about this, if my white male counterpart was saying the same thing, it would go further. Right. And there's research that is continuing to come out in terms of who makes the ask for uh, second chance employment, as well as what are the retention rates for individuals that have justice involvement. Folks with records are not a protected class. So federal contractor employers don't have to uh, report on um, that particular population. However, the research alone with lower turnover, higher productivity should implore HR professionals and hiring managers to consider hiring people with records if they want to save their company money. Right. And I think, I, well, that's all great information. I, I love that overview that, you, you, that you've given us. And I, you and I have talked, we, you know, when we do our programs that are all around, uh, you know, uh, measurements of, of how folks want to uh, improve their credit and how they want to do uh, budging and how they want to get their finances in order, all the way down to our loan program that we offer. I've told you, I know that that those who are justice involved repay loans at a very, very high rate to us. And so, while it's just as dangerous for me to make 
um, you know, a, a categorical analysis of that. I can look at it as as I know people who have come through these programs. Therefore, they have these backgrounds perform these ways in the in in the the objectives that we're trying to achieve, help them achieve for them. Uh, it has to mean something. It, it, it can't just you can't just dismiss it. It yeah. has to mean something. Yeah. And I think it's what you said. I think your point of you know um, among all those points, I think the one point that you made that is is that uh, they can't afford to lose this. Mm-hmm. They they have to do this, and so therefore uh, in in uh, they've got a lot to lose if they don't succeed this time. And so I I, I find that again uh, that. There just seems to be a dedication there that that I'm impressed with, yeah, and I like to see part of it also is the accountability right on the individual. If I'm a person that is on parole or probation, I don't want to get violated because violated means I'm going to recidivate, which means I'm going to get technical violated by my parole officer or my probation officer, and the chances are I may go back to prison or jail and 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 that's the formula. Right. Mm -hmm. And so jail and prison is about punishment. Right. And recidivism measures the likelihood and probability of going back into the punitive environment. Part of the work that CCT is now focused on as we embark upon the next 50 years for CCT is more of a process that bolsters economic mobility. And there's research, and that would be a whole nother podcast, but there's research that we are looking at on a phenomenon in a theory called desistance from crime. So you think about cease and desist. Mm -hmm. So desistance from crime is a process by which a person that has criminal offending behavior gradually dissipates, gradually desists, ceases. And that happens over time. Whereas we measure recidivism as a baseline for what is the probability and likelihood that a person is going to go back to prison. Part of that is to measure the number of beds that are needed in prison, what kind of resources need to be allocated for prison management and population management, all things that bolster and continue to fuel the prison environment, which really contributes to mass incarceration. On the desistance from crime spectrum, however, it's asset-based, right? It measures emotional intelligence. It measures that employee engagement, that retention, those familial relationships, and what are the stages along a person's reentry that can be celebrated that would contribute to not only maturation, but that ceasing from criminal thinking errors and criminal thinking behavior. It's a longer process, but that is transformation. That honors the person is the expert in their own life. Wow. That's, that does deserve another episode. You know, we've never had anybody twice, but it doesn't mean that we can't. I would love to come back. That is a great thing. So uh, I'm going to ask you one more question at the end, but I do want to kind of uh, close out with this on this. You know, one of the things that we call this is the No More podcast, but embedded in that is No More, N-O More. What would be something that um, if, if there were one or two things that you could say, in order for us as a society to solve some of these issues, we have to do these things no more. What would those be? Hmm. Just two. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think 
no more stigmatizing the justice-involved population. When that happens, I invite anyone listening to this podcast to stop, pause, maybe count to five, and ask yourself, why am I judging this person? That's it. No more stigma. No more stigma. And it isn't a social program. It isn't a community education class. It is you, listener, stopping and saying to yourself, why am I judging this person? Right. Explore that. No more stigma. I'm going to stop you right there because there's a new practice that I've learned that I've started doing, which is uh, we all kind of have we all have smartphones and some of us have watches. And when you find yourself thinking something, you stop, you set a 60 second timer mm-hmm. on your uh, watch or on your phone and you just think about why you're thinking that for 60 seconds. Just It's only 60 it's going to alarm, so you're not going to spend a lot of time, but focus specifically on that. And that would be a great exercise on this. When you think about that, set 30 seconds on your watch, set 60 seconds, and think, why are you thinking that? Mm-hmm. That's a great one. What mm-hmm. else? And I would say um, reentry is underfunded. <laughs> I mean, the, the nature of the work that we do, and I know all nonprofits are underfunded, But as individuals are, as the rate of incarceration continues to decline nationally, um, more people with criminal records will be in society that are looking for pathways to economic mobility. I don't want to single out just employment and housing, although those are critical, important, and foundational. But folks with records are looking for pathways to economic mobility which may include social programs, economic programs, but we don't want folks dependent on social and economic programs for the rest of their lives. We We want to encourage, equip, and empower folks to, back to Josh, be the expert in their own lives and get back or restart what their lives should be. So invest in second chances and partner organizations in the ecosystem around folks with barriers to employment, which includes justice involvement. So no more siloed, no more siloed investment in this work. Wow. Those are two great ones. That's, that's, that's awesome. Hey, so I want to close. I haven't closed like this, but uh, you and I do share something in, uh, um, and so I, I love that emancipated HR professional because I am an emancipated marketer. I don't know if you knew this, but I spent about 35 years uh, in the marketing area before I moved into what I'm doing. So for you and I, what, what would you, you know, what would you say to professionals out there who might be considering doing a different thing than what they're necessarily trained to do in the social justice or nonprofit space, what advice do you have for anyone who might be thinking about that? Ooh, so much. Um, I would say... And this goes back to this passion, experience, and melding itself. I told you I was going to come back to that. That's what this is. (laughs) So I think the conditioning that we as emancipated corporate folks have creates an opportunity for us to 
um, dismantle is not the word, but think differently about our transferable skills. Yes. Right. So the language of corporate is important. Right. What does it look like to take and also embody your transferable skills? Right. It's not a one and done. No. It's not a let me go on LinkedIn and find a social justice organization and step in and, you know, everything is wonderful. Um, It, too, is a process. It was a process and continues to be a process for me. How do I repackage and repurpose 20 some years of corporate HR experience for second chances, right? Unapologetically. So I would offer to folks that are in the corporate sector that may be looking to marry their passions with purpose and maybe next, you know, whatever is next for you is what does it look like to actively embody your transferable skills in a way that brings you joy? Yes, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, uh, and, you know, the thing is, we we don't um, uh, we don't necessarily change the world in uh, in a week and we don't necessarily change the world at all, mm-hmm. but we can change the uh, the world for individuals. And I always encourage people, hey, if you can find a f- place first to plug into a passion with an individual that, you know, or an individual you encounter, then you can begin to see how your skills and your what you know can apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have another very, very good friend who uh, runs a very a successful business here in Charlotte, and he spends his time working with individuals primarily who have been either um, justice-involved or have experienced homelessness and tries to assist them in developing their entrepreneurial ideas mm-hmm. into business plans that hopefully eventually get funded and, and become successful businesses. Absolutely. And he doesn't have a 100% success rate, but he has enough of a success rate that he continues to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 try to, I try to encourage people to not have the fear to step out to understand, you know, there's a, there's an old line that says one of the greatest things you can give yourself as you get older is to become a novice at something. Mm-hmm. And so to, to take your skills, but then say, I'm going to try to apply these, but I'm going to understand going into this that I don't know. Right. I don't know this. Right. And, 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 and to not go into it, uh, you know, assure that you do. And go into it knowing that, that you don't. the process of unlearning is a journey for us corporate folks. <laughs> it is a journey. It is. That, 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 uh, they, they trained us well, didn't they? They did. And then here we are. Well, this has been great. I, I have truly enjoyed this. And uh, it's the Center for Community Transitions. Uh, we will put uh, your website and uh, oh, let me stop just there. We'll, we'll put this in the show notes. But uh, are there ways to be involved uh, with Center for Community Transitions if you wanted to be a volunteer or you wanted to? Uh, obviously, we're nonprofit. We're executive yeah. directors. We would not do our jobs if we didn't say you can always send us donations. Absolutely. But uh, are there ways that, that you can get involved? Yes, absolutely. The best way to stay connected to all that we have to offer for folks to get involved is to subscribe on our website, uh, centerforcommunitytransitions.org. At the bottom of the landing page, you can subscribe. You can also follow us on social media. We are on LinkedIn. We are also on Instagram, CCT Charlotte. 
And we are also on Facebook, CCT Charlotte as well. Lots of volunteer opportunities, both for um, LifeWorks, um, networking, employment readiness, um, practice job interviewing. We also have volunteer opportunities with our um, children and family program and our Families Doing Time program that are all available on our website and on our socials. Patrice, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And and, uh, everyone out there, have a great day. Okay, thanks for listening. If you want to know more about Commonwealth Charlotte and the services we provide, see our website at commonwealthcharlotte.org or email info at commonwealthcharlotte.org and someone will be in touch with you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.